The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Like it's, it's like you have a group of pigeons and you throw some bread and they all flock to it. That's basically every play in T-ball. It ends up with this big dog pile, the ball somewhere on the bottom. But part of the T-ball experience, of course, is learning how to hit, right? Learning how to hit, how to swing a bat. One of the things that every child who wants to play baseball is going to have to learn how to do is swing a bat. Now, if I were to give instructions on how to swing a baseball bat, I would tell you, you need to bring your off foot forward. Uh, You need to keep your body and your hands back. You need to rotate your hips. You need to keep your hands together. You need to keep your head on the ball. Keep your back, knee, hip, and head in a straight line. Keep your elbow in. Bring the barrel of the bat to the ball. And everything I said is true. That's how you hit a baseball. But nobody signs up for t-ball and learns how to swing a baseball bat by just hearing those instructions and then putting them into practice. Right? Like, I don't know of a single baseball player who ever learned how to hit a baseball simply by listening to instructions. No, the way almost every kid learns how to hit a baseball is by watching examples. Right? Whether it's, uh, it's their coach, it's other players, it's major leaguers on TV. Let me see what it looks like. You look at examples, you, you see how others do it, you see how the best players do it. That's how those of us who play baseball, learned how to swing a bat. Then you go from there with coaching and and you refine it with instruction. But the primary way in which we learn how to swing a baseball bat is by imitating others' examples. Open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 2. This morning we're going to cover verses 19 through 24. Before we get to those verses, uh, let's, let me take a s- quick step back here and let's think about the broader context of uh, this section of the book of Philippians. So uh, if you're looking in your Bibles from chapter 1 verse 27 through uh, chapter 2 verse 18, that section, Paul's basically developing one idea. And, and that one idea is in 127, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This whole section is about how the Philippians are to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. And so you can see at the end of chapter one, he's talking about unity in the face of opposition. And then in the beginning of chapter two, he talks about how that unity is grounded in humility based on each person seeking to count others as more significant than themselves. And then he ties that to Jesus and his humility the ultimate expression of humility in not holding on to all of his rights, uh, his prerogatives as very God of very God, but in love for sinners like you and like me, he took on human flesh and he died for our sins, even death on a cross. And then God exalts him to the highest place and gives him the name above every other name, right? These are very familiar verses to us from chapter two, verses five through 11. And then in light of everything Jesus did, Paul says, now Philippians, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
And so all of that, right, that, that whole section you can think of as an explanation of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Which now brings us to chapter 2, verse 19. I'm going to read uh, through the end of the chapter, uh, but our focus again is going to be on verses 19 through 24. So please look along in your own copy of the scriptures as I read those verses now. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we confess that we in and of ourselves cannot understand your word, cannot apply your word, cannot live out your word for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask now for your help by the means of your Holy Spirit. Lord, the Holy Spirit would illuminate this text for us, make it come alive for us, and then allow us to apply it by grace. God, I pray for each and every person right now who is uh, hearing these words, Lord, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see uh, what is in this text, Lord, that they might uh, live in a way that Christ is preeminent. Lord, I pray for myself, Lord, that you would help me now to be clear, uh, to preach the gospel uh, in a clear fashion. Uh, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's easy for us as 21st century Bible readers to read something like Philippians and forget that it was actually a letter. Remember that the Bible wasn't originally a single bound book. It's comprised of 66 different books that God through human authors gave to us. And so the book of Philippians, one of those 66 books, was an actual letter written by the Apostle Paul as he's being held prisoner in Rome written to the church at Philippi. And so this is not like Paul writing out theological bullet points, right? This is not Paul trying to comprise some kind of treatise on Christian living. And and so we get a sense of that in these verses because on one level, right, what what did we just read? Well, we just read a passage about some good old-fashioned logistics, right? Paul's in Rome. He's a prisoner. He's awaiting his verdict. Am I going to be freed? Timothy's with him. Look back at the the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul drops Timothy's name in the greeting. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. 
And so Paul says, verse 19, I want to send Timothy to the Philippians to just kind of get an update on how everything's going. Verse 23, he elaborates on that. I'll send him once I figure out what's going on with my own situation. When I get my verdict, and hopefully I'll be able to make it there sometime as well. And then he's also trying to send Epaphroditus. Those are the verses at the end of the chapter that we read earlier. But for now, you've got Paul in Rome. He's writing this letter, and he says, I'm going to send Timothy. I'm going to send Epaphroditus your way. And so this part of the letter to the Philippians is, at least on one level, just practical logistics. Now, Philippians, for such a short book, right, it's only four chapters, has a lot of, like, really memorable and, and, and famous sections. This section, at the end of chapter two, this is not one of them, right? Like, like if we're honest, most of us, when we're reading Philippians in our daily devotions, this is the part that we kind of skim, right? Like nobody's life verse is, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, right? No one gets that tattooed on their arm. But while it's true that this section of the letter is in one sense just practical logistics, I think there's a whole lot more to it than just that. Because Paul isn't just sending Timothy because he needed to send someone and it just so happened that Timothy was in the room and he's not really doing anything. Sometimes we ask people to to do something, not because we particularly had them in mind, but simply because they were there and it was the easiest thing. Like, hey, could you grab that book for me? Oh, I'm so honored that you would ask me, that you would choose me to grab that book for you. It's like, well, no, you just, you were there and it was the easiest thing for you to grab it. But this isn't that. Paul is sending Timothy for a reason. And more importantly than that, he's telling the Philippians that he's sending Timothy for a reason. That is, he's using the fact that he's going to send Timothy to make a point in his letter. One way we can see that is to think about how in most of his letters, Paul puts stuff like this, like who he's sending with the letter or logistical details at the very end of the letter. Right? So you think about Romans chapter 16. You think about Colossians chapter 4. You think about 1 Corinthians chapter 16. At the end of those respective letters, that's where Paul usually gives logistical details like this because otherwise it would disrupt the flow of the letter. But not here. Paul intentionally brings up Timothy and Epaphroditus right here, right, right after that section about living worthy of the gospel to illustrate everything that he said thus far. You know how we tend to remember illustrations from sermons really well? Oftentimes better than the points that they actually illustrate. Well, these guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, these are concrete examples of living lives worthy of the gospel. Living illustrations of unity and humility and working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so Paul uses their travel plans as an excuse to bring them up to drive home these points that he made earlier in the letter. And so let's think about Brother Timothy from verses 19 through 24. Well, Timothy is, there's a lot of stuff about Timothy from the Bible, right? So we can even take a step back from Philippians and we can see what we can piece together from the rest of the scriptures about who he is. In the book of Acts, we meet him for the very first time in chapter 16. So keep one finger in Philippians chapter 2. Flip over to Acts 16. Acts 
Acts 16, verse one, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. There he is, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, Paul was in the cities of Lystra and Derbe in Acts chapter 14, and so it's possible that he first met uh, Timothy then. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that by the time he has this encounter in chapter 16, Timothy's saved, right? He's described as a disciple. And we know from the letter of 2 Timothy that it's not just his mother Eunice, but also his grandmother Lois, who was a believer. And we know that from a young age, he learned the scriptures from them. So continuing in Acts 16, verse 2, Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now from there, Timothy travels everywhere with Paul. Paul becomes like his spiritual father. They go all over the Mediterranean. They, they start churches. They, they, they encourage believers. They strengthen disciples. You know the bond you develop with someone from laboring in the Lord together as partners? That's, that's Timothy and Paul through the rest of the book of Acts. And so Timothy becomes like Paul's right-hand man. He's the Robin to Paul's Batman. He's the Watson to Paul's Holmes. By the time this letter is written, they've been doing ministry for over 10 years together. And perhaps most importantly for our context today, Timothy was with Paul in Philippi when the church got started there. One way to see just how close Paul and Timothy were is to look at the Pauline epistles, right? And by the Pauline epistles, I'm referring to the 13 letters that Paul wrote. So if you put your your finger in Romans 1 and you put another finger in the book of Philemon, right? The the, the books between your fingers are the Pauline epistles. There's 13 of them. In six of those letters, Timothy is with Paul when Paul writes the letter. And so the letter will start with Paul and Timothy or Paul and some other dude and Timothy. That's 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. An additional two Pauline epistles are written to Timothy. And those, of course, are 1 and 2 Timothy. And then in two other letters, Romans and 1 Corinthians, Timothy is directly mentioned by Paul in the letter. And so you add that up. 10 out of the 13 letters that we have that were written by Paul directly involve Timothy in some way. He's either there writing it, or he's the recipient, or he's mentioned in the letter. The only three exceptions are Galatians, Ephesians, and Titus. Timothy was Paul's indispensable right-hand man, his partner in ministry. Now let's go back to our text in Philippians 2, and now we can see what Paul tells the Philippians about Timothy. Paul starts by saying, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. But remember, we're we're making the the argument that Paul is doing this for a reason, especially at this point in the letter, as an excuse to bring up Timothy to illustrate everything that he's talked about so far. And so look at verses 20 through 22. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. 
That's some high praise. Right? Verse 20 pretty much says everything that you need to know about this guy. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Paul says, I've worked with a lot of people. I've worked with a lot of godly people. And I've got a lot of people here in Rome who are working with me for the sake of the gospel. But there's no one like Timothy. He's special. He's truly one of a kind. What makes him so special? Well, verse 21, the rest all seek their own interests. Now, I don't think that's a shot at any particular person or a group. I think it's more of a, a general statement about people. People, generally speaking, seek their own interests. And that's true. But Timothy, Timothy, Paul says, is different. He doesn't seek his own interests, but those of Christ, and by extension, Christ's people. And that's a very intentional language that Paul is using there. Scan your eyes back earlier in the chapter to verses three and four. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Okay, so Paul, what does that humility look like? Like, what does it look like when someone is practically living out humility? Verse four, let each of you look not only to his, here it is, own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so Paul is intentionally circling back to that definition of humility in describing Timothy. The definition of humility is not looking to your own interests, but instead looking to the interests of others. And Timothy, Paul says, is a shining example of that humility because while they all, people in general, seek their own interests, Timothy, Timothy's seeking the interests of Jesus Christ and his people. Timothy's not concerned about himself. Timothy's not concerned about advancing his own goals and seeking his own comforts. He's first and foremost about serving Jesus, serving the church, making sure that everybody else's interests are taken care of before his own. So he is a living, breathing illustration of the biblical humility that Paul laid out earlier in the chapter. Here's the thing about Timothy. It's one thing if he just, he's new to the scene. Like, wow, this guy, he's really on fire for the Lord in all these ways. Let's, let's, just, let's just hope that he keeps it up. If you've been saved for long enough, right, we've all seen people who, who seem to be just burning with passion and zeal. Then time passes and, and trials come, and they're like the seed that fell on rocky ground that shoots up and then, and then withers. Before you know it, that, that person who you thought was going to be the next John Piper doesn't even go to church anymore. But that's not Timothy. Verse 22, you know Timothy's proven worth. Remember, Timothy was around when Paul first went to Philippi and planted that church. And so the, the people who were there from the beginning know what kind of guy he is, and they know his proven track record. Right? They know his faithfulness. They, they know his consistency. They know that he has for many, many years proven his worth. And so Paul continues, verse 22, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. Paul wouldn't just say that about anybody, that they served him as a son with a father. But that's terminology, I think, that means a lot less to us than it would have meant to Paul's original audience. Because before the Industrial Revolution, right, sons, generally speaking, 
vocationally did whatever their fathers did. If you think about this, like why was Jesus a carpenter? It's not like he went to a career fair, right? And, and, and filled out like a skill survey and they just kind of matched him up. We think you'd be a really good carpenter. Now the reason Jesus was a carpenter was because his earthly father, Joseph, was a carpenter, right? It's that simple. Generally speaking, sons did whatever their fathers did. Which meant a few things. One, it meant that your son was basically like a mini version uh, of you in terms of your career and your life trajectory. But two, it also meant that you would spend a lot of time with your son, right? He would spend a lot of time with you just learning your craft. If your father was a carpenter, it means that you, as his son, would spend hours upon hours with him learning his trade in the woodshop. And so Paul describing himself as being like a father to Timothy in serving meant both of those things. It, it first described the investment that Paul made in Timothy, discipling him, teaching him about the faith, teaching him about the things of the ministry. He was Timothy's mentor, but also it described the fact that Timothy was like a mini version of Paul. Paul's basically saying, I'm not ashamed to send this guy on my behalf because he's a really good representation of me. He's like me in every way. Jesus said, Luke 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's what's going on here. And so when I'm sending him, it's basically like I'm going myself. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and following. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is Paul writing. I urge you, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. You see that? I want you to imitate me. And that's why I'm sending you Timothy because he's so much like me that me sending him to you is like me going there myself. And you watching him and imitating him is like you watching me and imitating me. So let's put this all together. Paul is sending Timothy, not just as a matter of convenience or logistics, but he's sending Timothy to the Philippians as an example, as a living, breathing example of someone who lives out all of the instructions, everything that he's already talked about in chapter two. As an example of someone who looks not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As an example of someone who is consistent and proven over many years. As an example to be imitated. Imitate him as he imitates Christ. Because Paul knows that one of the best ways for the Philippians to learn about the gospel-worthy life that he's been talking about in this section is for them to watch people who are currently living lives like that, like Timothy, imitate him. It's said that in the Christian life, a lot more is caught than taught. And it's true. It's kind of like learning how to swing a baseball bat in T-ball. You can give me all the verbal instructions you want about where, where my elbow goes and, and where my front foot moves. But at the end of the day, a good example of a good swing is invaluable. Now, God has given us his word. 
And I'm certainly not discounting that. Obviously, right now we are studying that word because we believe that it contains everything that we need for life and godliness. God has given us his Holy Spirit, and I'm not discounting that either. The Spirit gives us wisdom on how we are to live godly lives. But one of the major means that God uses to bring his people to spiritual maturity, along with his word and his spirit, is other believers. Other Christians faithfully living out the scriptures and living spirit-filled lives. We watch them and we grow as a result. That's what Paul says, looking ahead a little bit in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Right? Keep your eyes on them. Watch them. And this happens, I think, a lot more than we might recognize, maybe even subconsciously. Let me give you an example from your own spiritual life that I think you will be able to relate to. Why do you pray the way that you pray? I'm almost positive that every person in this room learned to pray primarily by hearing someone else pray. Maybe it was your parents and you listening to them pray and imitating them. Maybe it was another Christian. Maybe it was in a church service. Maybe it was from another source. But you probably learned how to pray from imitating someone else. The Bible gives us prayers. Right? For example, the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms. But generally speaking, that's not what our prayers sound like. What our prayers do sound like is each other's prayers because we are learning from each other. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to imitate godliness. Again, Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And, and so as Christians, right, we're, we're all in one way or another imitators of Christ, seeking to be like Christ, being conformed into the image of Christ. And in addition to that, we look at other Christians, we learn from other Christians as they imitate Christ. Now, let me make a point here just for those of you in this room, I don't know all of you, but I assume that there are people in this room who are not Christians. There is a danger for you in hearing a sermon like this because maybe you think to yourself, well, all I need to do to be right with God is to be like a Christian, act like a Christian, just do what they do and live a holier life. But that is completely wrong. A non-Christian trying to become a Christian by imitating godliness would be like me trying to become a chicken by imitating a chicken. Like I can cluck and I can eat chicken feed and I can, I can do all of the things that chickens do, but I cannot change my essence from human to chicken. Well, in the same way, as an unbeliever, you can try to do all of the things that Christians do. You can read your Bible, you can pray, you can give, you can serve, but you cannot change your essence from being a spiritually dead sinner to being a spiritually alive child of God by acting differently. There has to be a wholesale change in who you are. And that can only come through being born again through the gospel. The gospel that says that Jesus died on the cross 
to take away our sins. And in exchange, he's given us his perfect righteous record. And so what you need to do is not act like a Christian, is not think about how you can imitate Christians. What you need to do is you need to repent and believe the gospel and be saved. Then and only then should you think about how you can imitate others and grow in godliness. But before we go any further, perhaps it seems odd to you that Timothy is presented as an example in this letter, because remember, this letter is from Paul and Timothy. So isn't it kind of strange that he's basically presenting himself, or at least he's not stopping Paul from presenting him as an example of godliness? But this isn't unique to Philippians, right? This idea of a person using themselves as an example in the faith. Jesus, of course, said, I have, given you an, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Second Thessalonians chapter three, you got Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Listen to what they say. Second Thessalonians three, seven through nine. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we worked with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. You ought to imitate us. In this context, it's referring to work. We wanted to give you an example so that you can imitate us. They're certainly not shy about offering themselves up as an example. Well, what we need to realize is that in each of these cases, these people are not just like putting themselves out there for their own glory, right? So that other people would respect them or, or worship them. It's always ultimately being directed towards God. And so it's not about the person being imitated. It's about the conduct itself and who that conduct glorifies, which is God. So perhaps part of the reason that we kind of get uncomfortable about this is because we're so inwardly focused, because we're so self-conscious, we're so self-absorbed, we're always looking at ourselves and our image. But Paul and Timothy, they are so God-focused that they can tell others to imitate, imitate them as they imitate Christ without flinching. But also... Perhaps it's the case that we're ashamed to tell people, be like me and follow me, because we don't really want them to imitate us. We don't really want them to follow us. We ourselves perhaps are not pursuing holiness as hard as we should be. And so we don't want people to watch our lives too closely. D.A. Carson, a famous theologian, he tells a story of when he was in college and there was this graduate student named Dave uh, who was well-known for being a strong believer. And so Carson brings uh, an unsaved student to Dave, and the unsaved student basically says something along the lines of, I grew up in a good home. Uh, my parents encouraged us to be good people with good morals, and I just don't understand why you Christians are any better. Like, what's, what's the difference? What, what do you have that I don't? And Dave, this Christian graduate student, says, watch me. Come and live with me for a month, if you like. Be my guest. Watch what I do when I get up. 
what I do when I'm on my own, how I work, how I use my time, how I talk with people, and what my values are. Come with me wherever I go, and at the end of the month, you tell me if there's any difference. Now, maybe that strikes you as being a little bit over the top, but let's not miss the point here. How many of us would be comfortable can with a good conscience say something like that? Saying to an unbeliever, watch how I live my life, check my testimony, watch what I do when no one else is looking, watch how I speak at home, and because of God's grace working in my life, you're going to see a difference. Are we living lives, brothers and sisters, that are above reproach? Or is there some shame in us presenting ourselves as an example, not just because there's sin in our lives, because there's sin in all of our lives, of course, but because we're really not striving for the holiness and and desiring God's glory as much as we say that we do. Our faith is kind of lukewarm and our obedience is kind of mediocre and we really don't want other people to see that. They look too hard, they'll find out that we're frauds. But Paul knows that's not Timothy. He has proven his worth. He has been with me through thick and thin. I've known him, I've seen him, I've watched him for many years. He's certainly not perfect by any means, and if you read the letters of First and Second Timothy, you, you will, you'll pick up on a lot of his weaknesses. But overall, right, big picture, here is a guy that Paul can hold up as an example of Christ-like living, as an example of someone who is really pursuing the glory of God with his life. Someone who's working out his salvation with fear and trembling. Brothers and sisters, that is the kind of testimony that each and every one of us must be striving for. Why is Paul telling us about Timothy's travel plans in the middle of this letter? It's because he wants us to consider his example and imitate him as he imitates Christ. Let me give you a couple of application points here from this text. Application point number one is for the parents in the room, those of you who have children at home, and it's to leave your children with a rich heritage of faith. Leave your children with a rich heritage of faith. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is uh, Paul writing to Timothy. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. From childhood, Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings. Why? Because of the faithful parenting, the faithful ministry of his mother and his grandmother. All of those characteristics of of godliness in Timothy that we looked at this morning, they're all part of the rich heritage of faith that were passed down to him from his mother and his grandmother. Not that faith is in any way inherited, It's not just because a child grows up in a Christian home that says nothing about their salvation. But God is gracious to often use the labors of parents in teaching the faith to their children as a means to save them. And Timothy is just one example of that. 
Brothers and sisters, I think I speak for every one of us who has children, every one of us who are parents, when I say that the greatest desire is for our children to know the Lord, or for our children to be saved. Like, like we would we'd give everything else in the world to see our children saved, right? to see them walking in the truth, to see them walking with the Lord and, and serving him with all their lives. Now God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Right? Salvation is of the Lord. But again, God is pleased to often use the faithful, consistent witness of parents as one of the primary means to bring children to spiritual life. And so mom and dad, I urge you, I plead with you to pour into your children, to make every single effort you can to pass down a rich heritage of faith like Lois and like Eunice did. Take advantage of every single teaching moment. Constantly have conversations about the gospel. Point them to Christ. Point them to the cross on a daily basis. Bring your kids to church. Always keep them around the people of God. Family devotions. I know it is hard to be consistent. I, I know there's just some nights that you just don't want to do them. And I'm sure there were many nights especially early on when Lois and Eunice are just trying to teach Timothy the scriptures and he just can't sit still and he just misbehaves and, he, and he's distracted and, and they are ready to give up. But they kept at it. Right? They're faithful. And so Paul can say about Timothy, many years later, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures. Lois and Eunice, here are two women that we know nothing else about except that they were faithful faithful to pass down to Timothy a rich heritage of faith. Right? May we all be parents who, if for nothing else, are known for the rich heritage of faith that we pass down to our children. Application point number two is for the non-parents in the room. So this is everyone who uh, I wasn't speaking to directly with the previous point. And so this is you if uh, you're not married or uh, you don't have kids or maybe your kids are out of the home. Don't think that just because you don't have children in the home that you cannot have a parental influence on a soul. Think about the Apostle Paul. Paul say, ah, you know what? I don't, I don't have any kids. I don't have to be concerned with this whole leaving my children a, a rich heritage of faith thing. That's for, that's for you guys. No. He didn't have any of his own children to disciple, so he took Timothy under his wing. You'll remember from Acts 16 that, that Timothy had an unsaved father. We don't really know anything else about Timothy's biological father, but we know that in many ways, Paul became Timothy's spiritual father. And so in our verses from Philippians, Paul talks about how Timothy served with him as a son with his father. First Timothy, he calls Timothy, my true child in the faith. 2 Timothy, he calls Timothy, my beloved child. 1 Corinthians 4, he calls him, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. We see this over and over and over because he comes alongside Timothy and he invests in him and he disciples him and he loves him and he cares for him as a father would his own son. So for those of you without children in the home, don't think of investing in young people as just the responsibility of parents. 
you have an immense opportunity to do great work for the kingdom of God by taking a young person under your wing, pouring into them as you would your own child. One practical way you can do that is just by getting involved in something like children's ministry or youth ministry, right? Teaching the the youngest souls in the church the Bible. Even if you don't have kids at home, you can become like a spiritual father, a spiritual mother to someone like Paul did to Timothy. Third application point is to find someone to imitate. Find someone to imitate. You want to learn how to swing a baseball bat? You watch examples, right? You, you watch other people and their swings and you imitate them. You want to learn how to live a holy life pleasing to the Lord? You watch examples. You watch other people in their lives and you imitate them. Now the big difference is that you can't just turn on ESPN and watch highlights of faithful Christians. It's not like a, like a top 10 plays of humility from the past week. Checking in at number five, we've got uh, Mike helping to take out the trash after the children's meeting and look at how he double ties that bag so that nothing slips out. What an example of humility. You are not going to see that on TV. What you need is discipleship. You need brothers and sisters to come alongside you and live lives in front of you that you can imitate. Friends, the the, the men who have discipled and continue to disciple me in my Christian walk, yeah, they've taught me a lot about the scriptures. But again, a lot more is caught than taught. And so I've learned so much from watching them parent how they deal with their kids and issues of discipline. I've learned so much from watching their marriages, how they lead their wives in the Lord. I've learned so much from how they deal with adversity, how how they rely on the Lord in difficult times. I've learned so much from just watching their lives and imitating them as they seek to live out holy lives. And so for that reason, I don't think it's overstating it to say that every single Christian in this room needs to be in some kind of discipling relationship. Doesn't have to be a formal one. Doesn't have to involve regular meetings or anything like that. It it just needs to be a relationship with a brother or a sister where you're just spending time together, doing life together, watching each other live out the Christian life and imitating each other as each imitates Christ. Find someone to imitate. Fourth and finally, love Jesus by loving the church. Love Jesus by loving the church. Kind of skipped over this earlier, but but look again at Philippians chapter 2. I want you to see this in your own Bibles. Look at Philippians 2.4. Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Now look at 2.21. He says, they all seek their own interests, not. Now, given what he said in verse 4, how do you expect him to finish that sentence? You expect him to say, they all seek their own interests, not interests of others. But instead, Paul pivots and says, not those of Jesus Christ, not the interests of Jesus Christ, which at first glance seems kind of strange, but then you think about it and it makes sense because the interests of Jesus Christ are the interests of others. 
That is the way you seek the interests of Jesus Christ is by seeking the interests of others. The clearest way that we can love Jesus is to love his people, to love his church. So brothers and sisters, I'm going to close with this. You need to think about how you can apply this one, how you can love Jesus by loving his church. I think sometimes we, we over-spiritualize what it means to love Jesus. We think it has something to do with like our emotions and some transcendental thinking and, and feeling and all that kind of stuff. Really, opportunities to love Jesus faithfully are, are staring us like right in the eyes. By serving in the nursery so that the same few people aren't always having to miss the service. Visiting a struggling church member and just spending time with them, encouraging them in the word and with prayer making a meal for another family in the church, whatever it might be, right? All of those things, right? As practical and as simple as they might sound, those are opportunities to love Jesus. Because again, the interests of Jesus Christ are the interests of his church. Timothy loved Jesus by loving his church, especially the church at Philippi. And so brothers and sisters, let's love Jesus by loving his people, by loving his church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you in your wisdom have not only given us your word and have not only given us your Holy Spirit, but have also given us other Christians in the church that we might be discipled, that we might see examples of Christ-likeness as we pursue Christ-likeness in our own walks. So Lord, I just pray for each and every believer in this room, Lord, that we would indeed imitate one another as we each imitate Christ, that you would conform us more and more into the image of your Son each day. And Lord, we pray for those in this room who do not know your Son, who, who are not believers, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day that they would be born again, Lord, that they would believe the gospel, that the gospel would shine into their hearts, Lord, that they might be saved and have their sins forgiven and have the righteousness of Christ. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.